thinking about it subconsciously, you work your way down the list and pretty soon you're quite a ways down from the top. Please help us to just push you back up to the top, get our eyes, our focus, our gaze fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen here, the title of this morning's sermon is Knowing God's Will. Knowing God's Will. And as I'm thinking about knowing God's will or God's plan as another way of thinking about God's will, people often struggle to find purpose and direction in your life. So you think about a plan. People have a difficulty sometimes coming up with a plan or figuring out why am I here? What is the point? What is the purpose for life? And as a result, many wander aimlessly without ever finding what they are searching for. People are searching for purpose. They're searching for a plan, some direction in their life, and they're searching it for it in all the places that will never give them any direction, purpose, or plan. But yet, they don't know any different, so that's where they look. Sadly, those who do know different, believers, they're not immune from this either. Often, we spend our lives wandering aimlessly trying to find what we're searching for, and as believers, we should know that the thing we've been searching for has been right in front of us the whole time. It's a right vertical relationship, a moment-by-moment walk of faith with our God and Savior. As you think about that, just because you know something to be true doesn't mean that you're applying it practically in your life. And so sadly, you think about all, of all the people who shouldn't be struggling to find purpose and direction in, your, in their lives, who shouldn't be wandering aimlessly, it should be believers, those who know that God is the one who wants to direct their lives. God is the one who has a will for their life. God is the one who has a plan for their life. So the very people who should not be searching, sadly, if we're not trusting the Lord, we're, our thinking isn't right, we're wandering around aimlessly trying to find something that we're searching for too, but looking for it in all of the wrong places because by default believers wander just like the world wanders as they're searching for that sense of meaning that they can never quite find because that meaning and purpose that life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ it's found in a right relationship again with the God of the universe and it's completely unnecessary to be wandering aimlessly on account that God has revealed his will for every believer's life and he's done it very specifically in his word. So you think about where can I know God's plan for my life? He's revealed it in his word. So if I take an interest in his word, then I'm going to see in a clearer and clearer way what God's will is for my life. So you think about that. How could I follow God's plan or will for my life without knowing what that is? You see, it's useless to know that God has a plan or has a will unless you first know what that plan is. And you're only going to find it again through the revealed word of God. And then you think about this, if I find out what God's will is for my life, if I see what God's plan is for my life, if I know God's will, then what's the next step? The next step is, will I trust God enough to depend on him and follow his lead as he already has the will? He already has the plan. He already has the purpose. He already has the direction for me, but will I trust him? Will I follow him? Will I let him lead me through the paths of life? And as you think about that, as I'm following God's lead, then I'm having a walk or a manner of living that could please God. And that's a byproduct of trusting Him. That's a byproduct of being convinced that He knows what's best. You think about that. If God's will is that I would learn to trust Him and depend on Him, 
If God's will is that as I learn to trust and depend on him, I'd see how small I am, I'd see how big he is, I'd see how inadequate I am, I'd see how adequate he is, I'd see how insufficient I am, I would see how sufficient he is, and I would learn to trust him and let his spirit work and direct through my life. Then it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to realize that the byproduct of God directing my life is that it's going to be a life that's well-pleasing to him. And that's the whole purpose, that I could live a life that would bring him honor and glory, that would put him in the spotlight, that would live in a sense, I would be living in a way or I would be living with a purpose or mentality that wanted to lift him up. And then is the question is, is that even your desire? Because the ultimate desire of the believer should be to live a life that puts the spotlight, shines the light on him, glorifies him. You know, one of the catechisms that was said through some of the more established or you know, more historical churches, one of the creeds that they would say is that the chief aim of man is to glorify God. The chief aim of man is to glorify God. You well, know, how do I do that? To glorify something is to put it in an exalted or elevated place, to lift it high. And so as I shine the light or I put the focus on him with every aspect of my life, then I'm bringing glory to God. And as I'm doing that, I'm pleasing him. And is that your desire? I mean, really, as you take pause and you pray your way through the days of this week, ask yourself, God, is that even my desire? Is my desire to bring you honor and glory, to please you, to live a life that would be well-pleasing to you? And if you find as you pray about these things or think about these things, if you find that in your heart of hearts that's not really true, and there's no, the point isn't shame or guilt here, friends, but that is often true. When, when you get to a place of actual honesty, you'll be in that place where you say, you know what, I have aspirations that this would be true. There's part of me that wants this to be true, but this isn't practically true in my life. So then what would the prayer be? It's going to be a prayer just like what Paul prays today, that that would become a desire, that it would be my desire to live my life in a way that would be well-pleasing to him. And so as I think about that, is that my life's desire? Is that my heart's desire? And Paul understood this reality. He understood that this is something that would have to be a matter of prayer. He understood that this would be God's desire for every believer's life, that they would want to know his will. And that knowing his will, they would want to have their manner of living be reflective of God's will for their lives, which the byproduct of that would be that it would bring God glory and it would please him. So Paul knew that that was the desired objective. And so what did he do? If he knew that that was the objective that God wanted for his life and for the lives of others, that being a man of prayer... He, of course, made that a matter of prayer as it related to, in this context, the lives of these other believers here in Colossae. And so we're going to turn there and look at, this is the focus of Paul's prayer this morning for the Colossian believers. It's found in Colossians chapter 1, so if you will, you could turn there. It's up on the screen, so I'm assuming most of you are there already. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read this whole section starting with verse 9 we'll read through verse 14 and lord willing we'll at least cover this in summary fashion here this morning picking up in verse 9 for this reason we also since the day we heard it now catch this do not cease to pray for you 
and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So what a wonderful passage. It's absolutely loaded with truth. You could probably do a message on nearly every verse here. We're not going to do that. If you want to see more in-depth teaching on that, you can look up on Sermon Audio, the series on Colossians, and you could look at a little bit deeper explanation about what some of these verses mean, but we're going to do a little bit more of a survey of these verses here this morning, starting with verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So we start with the first little bit here, for this reason, or for this cause, is the idea. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it. As you think about what was that cause, well, it's because of this report that Epaphras had brought back that is talked about in verses 7 and 8. And so in verses 7 and 8, Epaphras had come to Paul and he had talked to him about these believers. And some of the things that he mentioned as he was talking to Paul, not just in He brought back this report to Paul, I should say. And as some of the things that he mentioned are are covered here, but the general idea is that they're facing, the the main threat that they're facing is this exposure to false teaching. So that's one concern. But then as you think about the positive things, he talks about their faith in Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 4, for we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says also in verse 4, and your love for all the saints. So, They learned it from Epaphras, we see in verse 7, who is a fellow minister of Christ on your behalf. Now he came and he declared and told Paul about these believers. So he heard at least three things about them. One was their faith in Jesus Christ. Two, that they had this love for all the saints. And three, that they were facing exposure to false teaching, which is what the rest of the book is dealing with. And so as you think about that, what was Paul's response to hearing those three things? Now, two of them positive. Now, he could have thanked God for that, uh, but one of them was a serious matter, that they were facing spiritual attack, that they were being bombarded with false teaching. And so what was Paul's reaction? His reaction was to start praying. Is that our reaction as we hear a report of difficult things that are going on in other people's lives? When we get that phone call, even in our own life, that lives that are, that's focused on something that is negative, it's a shock, it's, it's not positive news from a human perspective, is our first response to, to getting that information, something negative is occurring in our own life or the lives of others, is our first response in those moments to do what Paul did and start praying. Bring that boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is that your first reaction? I know oftentimes it's not mine. It should be. Oftentimes my first reaction is panic. Heart drops into the, heart goes into the throat. Is that what happens? You know, you, you really start to have that moment of panic or 
anxiety, fear, your mind starts to spin, you start to worry that those are the first reactions instead of coming to a place where despite that terrible news, you know God hasn't changed. You remind yourself of his faithfulness. You remind yourself of his promises to be with us as we walk through every valley of life. Not just the peaks. God says, I'll walk with you when you're going over the mountains of life and the high points of life, but I'll be right by your side through the low points and the valleys and the dips in life too. Are there some dips in life, friends? Yeah, there's some, there's some real dips in life. From a human perspective, especially, they're hard, really hard things. And the hard things that you're going through, you might be in a dip right now. I'm not calling you a dip. I'm saying you might be in a dip. But God's right there with you. He lives inside of us. And that same power that God was capable of raising Lazarus from the dead, capable of raising Jesus from the dead, that same sort of supernatural power is living inside of us because God lives inside of you. And so Paul, though, as he thought about what could I do to help, his very first thing was to pray because that's the best thing you could do to help in any of these situations. So he says our next phrase there is, we also do not cease to pray for you. We also do not cease to pray for you. And to ask, so there's a couple of things to desire is what many versions have. I'm not even sure where I pulled this from because it's not lining up with, with my notes, but I obviously cut and paste this from another translation of the Bible. But And to ask, that's the same, pretty much all of them have that except for King James and New King James, but this desire. You know, this desire is, is reflected in a prayer of intercession for other believers. And so it's, the desire is communicated through going to the Lord and asking him to undertake for these believers. So that was Paul and Timothy's response. And again, the question, is that yours? Is that mine? And this is really the main thought of the whole section of these five, five or six verses, five verses here, is we have not stopped praying and asking God on your behalf. We have not stopped praying. We do not cease to pray for you and to ask God or petition God on your behalf. And this is the third time in our series here on Paul's prayers that we've seen a similar sentiment expressed. We saw this in Romans 1, 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that, here we have it again, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. We do not cease to pray for you here in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 1, 2. Now in Ephesians, we saw this just a few weeks back. Wherefore also, now what caused him to start praying? (laughs) The only thing it took to cause Paul to start praying is he says, after I heard of your faith. As soon as I heard about you, heard heard of what you're going through, here two things are the same as what we're going through in Colossians. He heard of their faith and he heard of their love for the other saints. But immediately upon hearing news of other believers, right away he says, after I heard of that, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That was his reaction to hearing either good news or bad news about any believers. He just started praying for them. Something that should be, that we could take some instruction from as we see Paul's example here. And you see that Paul seems to pray for all the believers he met or heard about. Here's just, just another example here in Colossians. So we have the Roman believers, the believers 
in, in Ephesus. We have the believers here in Colossae. There's going to be other examples too. In Thessalonica, we're going to see a similar sentiment that Paul has about those believers. But the, what the takeaway is, is that Paul seems to pray for all believers everywhere, whether he's met them or not, just people he hears about, he starts praying for them. And one of the things that you should remember about these Colossian believers is Paul had never even met them. He hadn't even been there yet. He just heard about them and then penned this letter to them. But before he penned the letter, what did he start doing about them or for them? He started praying for them. And it's so encouraging. And so we have, that's the kind of the main idea is that we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. We've been asking God on your behalf. And then we'll get into the details here because he says, we do not cease to desire. So there's really two parts of that. You have to kind of read it into that. We do not cease to pray and we do not cease to desire or ask God. Ask for what though? Now there's two things that are identified and one is intended to flow from the other. So they're really connected in one sense. You could say they're really one, just bigger thought, but it's broken down into two separate parts. Again, completely connected. They're, they're not, they're, there's no way to separate them from one another. But it starts with that you would be filled, we see in verse 9, that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The second one we see in verse 10, that the Colossian believers would then walk worthy of the Lord in a way that would please Him. So those are the two things we're going to look at, spend the bulk of our time on here this morning. So his prayer of intercession, his petition to God on behalf of these believers as soon as he heard about them was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and then knowing God's will that they would walk in a manner that was worthy of the Lord. And those are the two outcomes that God desires for every believer. If you're the kind of person who can stay with me for about five to ten minutes and you're kind of trailing off right now, these are the two things to take home with you. God's desire for your life, the things that God is desperately interested in as it relates to you, if you are his child, if you have put your faith in his finished finished work on your behalf. If that's true, don't complicate the Christian life. It's not more complicated than this. Learn what God's will is for you, and then once you know what God's will is for you, then God wants to produce a walk in you. A manner of living is a way of describing that word. A manner of living that is worthy of your position in Christ. He wants to take the practical truths, the practical realities that are associated with being a child of God, that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that you've been empowered by the Spirit of God, that you've been adopted into a royal family, that you've been given this access to an abundant life, that you could be filled with God's peace and His joy when you're walking in dependence on him, you're walking with your gaze fixed on Jesus Christ, that when that's true, God can produce in and through you a life or a manner of living that would bring him glory and honor, that would be fitting of the positional identity that you have, and that it would please him and it would redeem the time that you have on earth. There's nothing more to it. Those are the the two aspects of it. Do I know the Lord in the sense of I trusted him? If I have, do I know his plan and will for my life? If I do, will I let him work through and empower and lead and direct? And will I depend on him and trust him to produce a way of life in me so that my life would be worthwhile instead of worthless? I mean, think about that. Those are really the two choices every day. Is my life today, is my time that's spent today, is it going to be worthwhile or is it going to be worthless? But friends, can you get back the time that's been pulled out of the account 
for today? Can it ever be put back? It can't be put back. So the question is, will we use it wisely or will we just waste another day away? You know, like the old Otis Redding song, sitting on the dock of the day of the bay, watching the tide roll away. Sitting on the dock of the bay, he says, wasting time. Now it's got a nice little jingle to it. But is that the song you're effectively singing as you go through life? Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Just wasting time. And I wonder how much, if we're honest, how much of life ends up being that way. Where because we don't see our purpose, we don't see God's plan or his will for our lives, we're just watching the clock tick by. Moments that we can never get back. And God's wanting to say, wake up! He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to say, wake up! Look at me, son. Trust me. I have a plan. There's something better. Like, just, just sitting there may not be overtly sinful, per se. Although to waste assets and treasures that God has given us, it's at least wasteful at a minimum. But he's saying, I got something better for you. It's so much better than that. I want you to live. I want you to live life. And so that's the kind of the two aspects of things that Paul is focused on. So we still see the first part of it. You're not going to have a manner of living that is characterized by a, or a manner of life that is characterized by pleasing the Lord or would bring him honor and glory if you don't first know what God's will is for your life. So that's why Paul starts with that prayer. He says that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now filled, if we look at this, it means to be or become generously supplied or fully equipped. That you would become generously supplied or fully equipped. Now this is interesting as you think about grammar. I, ha- I haven't been bringing up a lot of grammar lately, but this is, this is passive voice. And so because of the voice that this is in in the Greek language, this is referred to as a divine passive. Now it means that the subject, which is you, is being acted upon. You're not producing the action, you're being acted upon. And as you think about that, it's called the divine passive because God is producing this. God is doing this to you or providing this for you. He's making it possible for you to have a full knowledge of his will. And he revealed that in his word. He wants you to grow in your understanding. So it's grow in grace, but then grow in what? Grow in knowledge, grow in understanding so that you can know what the will of the Lord is for you. You can know it because God has revealed it in in his word. So you think of knowledge of his, of his will and it focuses on an understanding of God's eternal desires and purposes, but specifically in this context, his eternal desires and his eternal purposes as it relates to each individual believer, as it relates to you specifically. That there's this prayer that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, not, not, not just generally his eternal desire or God's eternal big picture plan, though that is revealed in God's word as well, but that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for you, for your life. And Paul echoes this sentiment in Romans chapter 12. These are famous verses that a lot of people have come across at some point in time, but verses one and two say, I beseech you, therefore brethren, 
Who is this written to? Believers. I beseech you, believers, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, by what? By the mercies of God. You don't produce this. This isn't because of anything that you've done. This is because of God's gracious disposition towards you, his tender, loving, compassionate love and care for you, that what would be the result of responding to God's mercy, to God's love, his, his tender compassion for you? He says, on the basis of that, brothers and sisters, this isn't a way to get saved. Because you are God's children, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, would you present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable? You could ask, you could add pleasing, which we're going to see in this passage, that is pleasing to God. And how does he describe presenting? This is not something God is forcing out of you when you say this word presenting. We have the word present in there, right? To present means that you willingly, you present something to, you hold it out, you offer it. God's not, God's not pounding you over the head and saying, you have to do this. He's saying that you would come to a place that you would see in light of God's grace and mercy and love and kindness and compassion towards you. That you would want to respond to that by saying, what other response would make any sense other than that I would want to present my body, my life, what the essence of who I am as a living sacrifice that is holy and then acceptable to God. And he says, that's your reasonable service. Like, nobody would say, what a unique conclusion you've reached in doing this. Isn't that sometimes how we act? when we finally get to these small little moments here and there where we'll yield ourselves as vessels in the hands of the master potter and we say, use me, Lord. We'll maybe start with, from a place of humility where we're finally willing to let him use us and then if we're not careful, a little bit of pride will, walk, will come in. He's only used this just the smallest amount in the smallest of ways because we've only given him just a little bit to work with and then if we're not careful, even though that is just absolutely ridiculous in light of all that he's done for us and all that we could bring in terms of an offering of ourselves for his use and for his service, again, not to earn his love but because we see how much he loves us and then if we're not careful, the flesh is so deceptive it creeps in there We've, it's just barely been used at all. And then a little bit of pride comes in. And man, look what a servant I am for Jesus. Look what I've done for the Lord. Look how he's using me. He's like, you numbskull. Child, I'm working through you. This is not I but Christ. This isn't you doing anything. You just finally got the little, the smallest little bit out of the way and I was finally able to use you a little bit. Can you keep the spotlight on me? Why do you insist on always making this about you? But isn't that the deceit of the flesh? Isn't that the default? That even in the moments we finally let him use us, if we're not careful, we're all of a sudden making that about us too instead of to God be the glory, great things he has done. Anyway, it's your reasonable service. We obviously could do a whole message on this passage here. It's kind of turning into that. But then what's the result of that? If, if I'm presenting myself to him as a living sacrifice, trusting that he can work then in and through me, what will be the result of that? Well, I won't be conformed to this world, but as I've yielded myself to the matter potter who can now shape me and mold me, he's going to transform me. He's going to transform me how? By the renewing of my mind. 
he's going to get my mind right. He's going to get my thinking right. Because as the heart is, that's the, th- the thinking of man, the, the place of volition, the, the communication center, what would I call it? The control center of the human body. It's speaking mostly, though, to your thinking and your perspective, your mind. But where your mind is, that's where your treasure is. So he says he wants to renew that mind, make it new. Get the focus right again. Get the gaze fixed on Jesus Christ again instead of on everything else. And when that's true, then you'll prove what is what? The good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How does that happen? Only when your mind is renewed. Only when you're a yielded vessel in the hands of the potter. Only when he's the one who's transforming you. The byproduct of that is that your life will be, your manner of living will be a testimony to what is good and acceptable and perfect. And if it's good and acceptable and perfect, what else is it? It's the will of God. Because God's will is for our sanctification. That we would be set apart. That we would be holy. Not because we are holy, because he wants to make us into something that we're not. As he wants to conform us into the image of his son who was perfect and who is holy. Now we have this phrase that modifies what we've just said about the knowledge of his will. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So that's the first intercessory prayer or petition that Paul has for these believers. But how is that going to happen? Or what's going to characterize that? I don't have that verse. But it's in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, it speaks to the means of acquiring the desired knowledge of God's will. Wisdom refers to insight. Understanding refers to comprehension that you would have. The means of this is that you'd have insight and comprehension. But spiritual, in my estimation, it likely modifies both wisdom and understanding. So, in our New King James Version, it's here in, in front of only understanding, but that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. How? In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. As the Spirit of God is the source behind you having any insight and comprehension. You see, apart from the Holy Spirit, you have no capacity to understand God's will. The Spirit of God is what brings about this knowledge of his will. He gives us this spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding to know the will of God for our lives. And you see, here's a verse that speaks to, I don't know what, here's a verse that speaks to, you don't have the capacity for this apart from God making it possible through his spirit. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, for what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? See, he naturally has understanding because he is a man so the spirit of being a man gives him understanding of the things of man now he's making a comparison he's saying even so no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God you don't have the capacity for understanding being filled with the knowledge of God's will for your life if God didn't through his spirit and through his revealed word make it clear to you this knowledge this wisdom this spiritual understanding this is provided by the spirit of God so that you could know the will of God for your life. And I think that's an important point to remember is that this isn't about you coming up with a five-step plan to make yourself more knowledgeable about God's will. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be praying about what things would contribute potentially to you learning more about what God's will is for your life and having this knowledge. Now, some of it is praying, Lord, give me that knowledge to the power of your spirit that you would fill me 
with wisdom and spiritual understanding so that I could know your plan and your direction and your purpose for my life. But then remembering that one of the primary ways the Spirit of God would then direct you or give you enlightenment or understanding or discernment or insight is from the pages of Scripture. And so if you don't put the two together, this idea that spiritual understanding of what the Scriptures even mean in terms of insight, discernment, that, that that actually is something that God helps with. But key in that equation is that we would actually look at those pages of Scripture. Now, what would be a byproduct of being filled with the knowledge of His will? That's why I say it's really one big prayer, even though it's two specific things in a sense, but they, they're related. So, after you're filled with the knowledge of His will, what does Paul know or see would be the byproduct of that? And that's what we're going to pick up here for verses 10 through 12a, the bulk of what's left here in our passage. The byproduct of that he, he prays, this is my second prayer, that you, would, that you may walk worthy then of the Lord in a way that would be fully pleasing to Him, that would be fruitful in every good work, that would be described by being increasing in the knowledge of God, that would be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. And it would result in you giving thanks to the Father. So here's the second specific thing, but again, one is a natural progression or byproduct of the first. They're not separate. Once you know or you're filled with the knowledge of God's will for your life, then the thing is, can I trust God now that I see from the pages of Scripture as God has revealed to me also by His Spirit, once I see what God's will is for my life, can I live, can I have a manner of living that would be compatible with God's desires, with God's plan, with God's will for my life? Would I have a worthy walk? And so you think about that, this word, that you would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That you would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That's the second main idea here. Now walk refers to your manner of living, the way that you lead your life, or the way that you conduct yourself. Worthy of the Lord refers to in a manner befitting of the name you bear. I love that. That you'd walk worthy of the Lord in a manner befitting of the name you bear. You know, when you're born into a family, what are you given? A name. Do you get to pick it? No. Now, come on, I know there's some technicalities. Eventually, maybe you can go change that awful name that your parents saddled you with. Gus the Bus. Get on the bus, Gus. There's a lot of stuff coming out right now. But you're given a name, right? You've been given a new name the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment you trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you now became a child of God and you're called a Christian, a Christ, a Christ one. You became a part of something and you bear that name. The question is, do you bear that name in a way that would be honorable, that would bring honor to the one whose name you bear? I think on a human level, consider that for a second. In a human level, you were given a name and that last name is associated with a line of people that are connected to each other. There's a heritage associated with that. And as you go about making decisions in life, 
you make certain decisions, some private, some public. Some of them are good decisions. And some of them are not. And the more public those bad decisions are, the more harm or dishonor that it brings to the name. Not just your name, but everybody else who has that same name, including the original one who had that name. And you've seen that in some ways, right? Maybe you've been the one bringing the dishonor. And is that something you need to dwell in, wallow in, remember, think about all the time? No. God says Christian, the Christian life is a new life. It's a forward-moving life. It's not a backward-looking life. But perhaps it was you and you can relate to times where you were bringing dishonor on the name that you were bearing. But there's also the potential where because you shared the same name as another, that their actions actually brought shame on the name that you have in common. That may have been something you've experienced too. And so when we're thinking about bearing the name, bearing the name in a way that would be worthy, it would be honorable, it would bring glory to the one whose name it is. And it's not your name. We're Christ ones. It's His name that we bear. And I think that was really powerful in a way that honors the Lord. It's really powerful when you really think of that, that I might walk in a way that befits the name that I bear. Because you bear that name one way or the other. And you're reflecting on that name. You're, you're, you're reflecting back on that name one way or the other. And it could be good. That's the prayer of Paul here, that it would be worthy, it would befit the name, or it could be as in a manner that doesn't befit the name that you bear. Now he says, unto all pleasing, it refers to the desired objective, which is to please him. And this is used at least two other times by Paul. Here's one of them in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, I beg you, that you would what? Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk in a manner that befits your calling. Now, here he's talking about the vocation. You have been given a mission, so I'm begging you that you would walk in a way that befits or is consistent with the mission that you've been given. Now, what's the mission that all Christians have been given? To be light bearers for Jesus Christ, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So, do that in a way that befits the name, the calling that you have. And here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, it says that you would walk worthy of God. Now again, that's a little bit more generic, sim- more similar to what we're talking about here. That your walk, your manner of living would be worthy of your position in the family of God. Now he called you into his kingdom and glory. So live in a manner that's consistent with who you are. Now, live in a manner that's consistent with who you are through your own strength? No, we're going to see that just like we looked at when it talked about being filled with the knowledge of His will, that was going to be done as a result of the Holy Spirit or spiritual wisdom and understanding that would be imparted to you. But have this be your objective, that I would have a manner of living that would be fit the name that I bear so that it would please Him. And then he goes into now four characteristics or descriptions of what this worthy walk, this worthy manner of living would look like. And the first one is being fruitful in every good work. Now, we know this. We've touched on it already at length here today. 
somewhat, it's like beating a dead horse, but it's never a dead horse because we always forget this point. We say that we know it, we say that we realize it, but we don't practically appropriate it the way that we should. We say, I know that God is going to have to be the one that produces this way of life in me, but then we forget that and we try to buckle down and produce this kind of life, this way of life in our own strength without focusing on God's word or being instructed by God's word or depending on God's power as a resource that's going to bring about those changes in our lives. Now, is there a human part to this? Sometimes people are like, you're making it seem like you have no part in this. You do have a part in this because God is not forcing us to serve him. There's a, a volitional response. I refer to it as a positive re- volitional response. Not just me, many, but I'm just saying that's how I understand it. You have to make choices, but the choice isn't am I going to buckle down and make this happen in my life. The choice is am I going to respond or volitionally turn to the Lord in dependence and faith to let him produce and have his way with me? Am I going to yield myself as a vessel to him to work through? It's a very different idea than I'm going to choose or decide to make this happen in my own life. The choice isn't that. The choice is where am I going to be looking? The choice is who am I going to be trusting? The choice is who am I going to be depending on? Is it going to be God or me? And once I've made that choice, there's my part in it. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord through our own strength? No. The decision is I'm going to turn to the Lord. I'm going to look to the Lord. And so the idea here is you see this being fruitful in every good work. You're not going to produce that fruit either. You're not going to produce those good works. But did God build you? Did God make you? Did God design you? Is it God's plan? Is it God's will that you would have good works in your life? Yes. Not as a way of earning your way to heaven, but because you're a yielded child and that's being used to accomplish his purposes. That is his will for your life. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you that. Some, so many people think good works are the way that you earn your spot in heaven. And the reality is that you can't work your way to heaven. So that's confusing to people because they say, but I thought God wanted me to have good works in my life. In my life, And the answer is yes, he does, but he's the one who's going to produce them in your life. They're not a way to prove that you were saved, that you are saved. They're the byproduct of being saved when you're trusting the Lord. The fruit of God, is, you're bearing the fruit that God's spirit is producing in your life as you're staying connected to the vine who is the author and finisher of your faith, Jesus Christ. You're keeping your focus on him. But to make it really clear that both are true principles from God's word, one related to how you would live now that you are God's child, one related to how do I become God's child, they're in this really nice sequence here in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 8. Now in verse 8 it says, For by grace, what is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Unmerited favor. For by unmerited favor, something you didn't deserve, you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from a hell you deserve to a heaven you don't. It's also in the context somewhat speaking about being saved from the power of sin to rule and dictate in your lives too. But you've been saved how? You've been saved through faith. That's the only way you can be rescued is through faith. Now what is faith? Faith is trusting, being persuaded to trust or depend on the work of another. So through faith in God's work on my behalf, I have been saved It's not of yourselves. 
Paul wants to be really clear here. You can't save yourself. It is the gift of God. A gift meaning something that's freely given and freely received. It's from God. It's not of works we see in verse 9. Just like in Titus 3, 5, it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Just like in Romans 4, 5, it says, not to him who does not work, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith, there you have it again, is counted or credited to him for righteousness. What makes him righteous? Not his works, his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now keep going to verse 10 here. For we are, he's writing to who here? Believers. We already are his workmanship. Where we, we were created positionally in Christ Jesus. For what? We were created for good works. That was our purpose. That was what God intended, is that we would do the things that are right as a way of shining the spotlight or testifying about Jesus Christ, accomplishing our mission, which was to be ambassadors for Christ. How could we be effective ambassadors for Christ if our lives are not compatible with the message that we're proclaiming? Your testimony does matter. How do people see the love of God in you if there's no love being produced by the Spirit in your life? How can people see your faith apart from your life being lived in a manner that's compatible and consistent with the fruit that the Spirit of God is producing in your life. They can't see your faith. James talks about this. They can see your works, but they can't see your faith. So you're not justified before God on the basis of your works, but you are justified before man on the basis of your works, meaning the only way that they can see that you're righteous is by watching and listening to the things that you say and do. Now, is that a foolproof way of knowing that you're righteous, seeing, seeing what you're doing and hearing what you're saying. No, because can the, fle- can the flesh mimic or produce the right things from the wrong power source? Yes. But I will say the opposite is true too. Apart from the right words and the right things being produced in your life by God's Spirit, how would anybody know that you're God's child? If you are ashamed of the gospel and you're unwilling to let the Lord make changes in your life so that you can be obviously set apart so that when people see you, they say, there's a different dude. He doesn't fit in. He doesn't chase after the same things we're chasing after. He doesn't say the same things that we're saying. He's not motivated by the same things that we're motivated by. What makes that man stand apart, stand out? Now, if that's being produced by God's Spirit, that testimony is a way of your faith being revealed through your life. Again, you'll never be successful in making your life that way, but that's how your life will be lived if you're letting God lead. Remember that you would be filled with a knowledge of His will. That if you're filled with an understanding of God's plan and purpose for your life, you would trust Him to produce in your life a way of living, this walk that is worthy, this manner of living that is compatible with God's will for your life. And what would the result of that be? That you would be an effective ambassador and witness for Jesus Christ. Yes. Do you even care? Is that, do you even want to be effective? Are you so comfortable in your present way of living that you don't give a rip about the lost and dying around you? 
about your brothers and sisters in Christ and how God wants to change your life. He wants to transform your life so that your life is not about I anymore, but it's about Christ. And to be about Christ is to be about others because that was the only thing he was about. Convicting, isn't it? The point isn't to have you leaving here with your heads hung so low like this. The point is to convict us and challenge us and build us up and to edify us and to motivate us to want to allow the Lord to make changes, to see that I need to be praying about these things because they're not naturally taking place in my life. When I'm honest, this is not what my life looks like. It is not a worthy walk. My life does not befit the name that I hold, that I bear. Did I even finish verse 10 here? No, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, listen to this word, should walk in them. Is it guaranteed that we would walk in them? No. Is God going to make us walk in them? No. Does he want us, though, to live in a way that would bring him honor and glory? And the answer is yes. Don't ever let your understanding of grace cause you to think that God has no plan for your life. You're participation in his family, your position in his family has nothing to do with whether you'll trust him or let him make changes in your life, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a plan for your life. He does have a will and a plan for your life, and it would be that you would walk and live in a manner that would befit the name that you bear. That is God's will for your life. And so we can frustrate God's plan and will. We can, we can quench his spirit so that that never is true in our lives, but that isn't what God wants. He wants us to thrive. So we think about, here's a passage in John 15 that just reminds us that this isn't you who's going to produce fruit. God's going to produce this fruit. You're going to bear this fruit in your life as you stay connected to him. He says, the one who is abiding in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then he ends with, for without me you can do nothing. When you're staying connected to him, That person is bringing forth fruit, not because he's working so hard at it, but he's bearing that fruit because God is producing it in and through him. Again, without me, you can do nothing. We see Galatians 5, 22 through 23, because we see here, oh, I skipped ahead, sorry, because we see this next phrase that you would be strengthened with all might. So you'd be fruitful unto every good work. Oh, I skipped two. Now you'd be increasing in the knowledge of God. So as you grow in your faith, you would increase in knowledge. Again, that's passive voice. God's going to produce this knowledge in your life. It's the product of God's provision. It's a process over time. As you grow in your faith, you grow in your knowledge. It's not necessarily immediate. As you grow in your faith and you grow in your knowledge, you're going to be fruitful as you're trusting the Lord to work in your life. And the power source behind that is the strength that God provides, being strengthened with all might. Meaning, again, this is passive, God is strengthening you. You're the one being strengthened. And that means to be enabled, to become capable or able to to meet some task that has been assigned. And it's just another product of God's working in your life. And you see this next phrase, being strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. In case you were thinking, I have to strengthen myself. No, you're being strengthened by God who has the glorious power. It's God providing that strength through through His power. And you wouldn't need this if you could naturally have that strength, if you naturally already were strong, or if you could produce that strength. You wouldn't need God's glorious power to produce that strength or to strengthen you with all might. God has to do it because you're not capable 
of producing this. Without me, again, you can do nothing. When I'm weak, Paul says, then I'm strong because I'm depending on God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where does the strength come from? Where does the help come from? It comes from God. Now it says, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. This is the intended outcome. The intended outcome of being strengthened, of being fruitful in every good work and growing in your knowledge of God. The intended outcome is that it would produce patience and long suffering in your life. Now, what are those things? Those things are the fruits of the Spirit. You're not naturally patient. You're not naturally long-suffering. When somebody offends you, you naturally hold on to that. You naturally respond in kind. You're not long-suffering and patient. When somebody irritates you or somebody frustrates you, you naturally lash out. You naturally raise your voice. Now, you don't always mean to, per se, but it's a part of your DNA, how you're wired in your flesh. That's why you need a new nature. You need a supernatural power source to produce something supernatural in you. And that's this long-suffering and patience. Now, with what? With joyfulness, it'll be accompanied with joy because to live out God's plan for your life, to be led and directed by God's Spirit in your life, that's going to produce joy in your life. See, the fruit of the Spirit we see is love first, but then it's joy. And then it's these other things, long-suffering we just talked about gentleness, there's patience in there in, in the term gentleness. Meekness and temperance, temperance again, another word that refers to patience. These are things that the Spirit of God though has to produce. And what is the last, the fourth characteristic of this worthy life? You'd be fruitful in every good work. You'd increase in the knowledge of God. You'd be strengthened with all might. And then the result should be that you'd give thanks unto the Father. And that is the active voice now. That is your only part in this. That's the, re, that's the action that should be produced by recognizing all of these other truths that we've just covered. See, God does everything else and then we say thank you. Isn't that awesome? You think about the worthy walk, God does it all. If you just get your eyes on Him, if you just get yourself out of the way, if you just let Him do His work in and through you, and then your response is an attitude of gratitude as you, say, as you say, thank you. Thank you, God. You see, God wants you to live your life in a way that pleases Him. That kind of life is characterized by being fruitful, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, and giving thanks to God for His provision. Some of you are wondering how we're going to get through this really quickly. These last verses, the second half of verse 12 through 14 says, this is just now a description of the Father. These are the things that the Father has done. He has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So do you have a lot to be thankful for? Again, we're not going to cover these. We don't have time to expand on them, but listen to these verbs. He's qualified us. He's made us, when it says made us meet, uh, there's another, this must be an easier version that I picked, not on purpose, that's on the screen, but that just means he qualified us. In your Bible, it says, made us meet. So he qualified us, thank you, God. He delivered us from the power of darkness. Thank you, God. He translated us, instead of being in darkness, he translated us to a different position. He translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what we mean when we say we're in Christ. He put us in Christ he gave us that standing of being in Christ. Then he redeemed us. How did he do that? Through his blood. 
Not through your sacrifice, through his sacrifice. And then the last part of that is he forgave us. Thank you, God. You could ask, is that it? Is that all he's done? Do you need more than this, friends? Qualified, delivered, translated, redeemed, and forgave? God didn't shortchange you. You are blessed beyond words. God did all this for, this for you. And will you give thanks to him for that? So we think about knowing God's will. Do you desire wisdom and understanding so that you can know God's will for your life? Do you see that God's will has been revealed in his word? Do you want to live life in a way that honors and pleases him? Do you pray this for yourself and for others that are in your life? I hope you do. I hope that you would see this, that Paul saw the importance as soon as he heard about these believers to start praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for their life and that they would then be able to walk worthy of the Lord in a way that would please him. That's something we should be praying for ourselves and for others. And may that be the kind of mindset that we all have because we all need that prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word here this morning. Thank you for all these just absolutely amazing reminders of how blessed we are what you've done for us, all the different ways that you've undertaken to meet our needs, both in time and in eternity. Thank you that you keep reminding us that this is focused on what you've done for us, that you're the one undertaking to make these things possible in our lives. Pray that we would get ourselves out of the equation, get ourselves out of the way, and let you work in and through us to produce a way of living, a manner of living, a walk that is befitting of the name that we bear. Pray that that would be our desire, that we would pray for these things and we would pray for others in this regard as well so that they could have the proper mindset and perspective too. Thank you for, again, allowing us this building to meet in. Thank you for each and every believer who's here this morning. Pray that they would just be encouraged by these things. Thank you for putting them in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.